Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. You are listening to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Al Amin, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're also streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. If you're new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. This is an extremely quick hour in radio. But you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And since you are new to the Radio Islam family, you can check out all of those episodes that you may have missed. Um, and you can get them wherever you get your podcasts. So if that's SoundCloud, TuneIn, iTunes, or Google Play, you'll find us once again at Radio Islam USA. What's the, uh, what's the handle? That's right, at Radio Islam USA. Now, if you'd like to make a comment or ask a question throughout the course of tonight's discussion, you can do so at 312-750-1178, 312-750-1178. That is a radio rule. You must say any address or number. You've got to give it twice, so that's why I do that. We give it to you two times. Make sure you get it. Okay, so tonight uh, we're just going to jump right in. I uh, hope everyone had a great day. If you are behind the wheel right now listening to us, be safe. Eyes on the road. Put the phones down. Uh, let us just accompany you for the next hour, okay? So tonight's discussion, uh, I am really pleased to have uh, the guest that we do, the guest we have tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking with a real Renaissance man. And if you know anything about Renaissance men, we're talking about people who are um, very much polymaths, uh, uh, masters or engaged in, in quite a few different areas of, of study and activity. And tonight's guest is uh, no exception uh, to that. We have Imam uh, Tariq Najiola, uh, hailing from Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland, excuse me. Um, and he is a religious leader, interfaith activist, entrepreneur, and a licensed patent agent running his own business, Gibraltar Consulting. He holds degrees in Arabic, Islamic sciences, and Islamic jurisprudence, uh, Sharia, uh, from Sheikh Ahmed Koftaro's Abu Nur Institute in Damascus, Syria. He received a Master's of Arts from Georgetown University with a concentration in Islam and Muslim-Christian relations through the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding. Imam Tariq is a 2014 American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute Fellow and since 2014, he has also served as the leader of the interfaith education organization, D.C. Muslimat. This platform brings together people of various faith to inform, educate, and hopefully solve social challenges. I must also mention that he also served as the interim uh, imam for Masjid Muhammad, uh, also known as the, uh, the nation's mosque. And he is a 2018 Institute for Islamic Christian Jewish Studies, uh, Imaging Justice in Baltimore Fellow. And that's not everything. That's just some of what what he is engaged in. Imam Tariq, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam, Imam Tariq. How are you? Oh, alhamdulillah, I'm doing well. Praise be to Allah. 
Um, it is really good to have you on. And as I was reading through, uh, just and I know you didn't say that you didn't send everything, but I was reading through your bio and I said, my goodness, um, I don't know if we're actually going to get to have a conversation because you have done so much. Uh, you've got your hands uh, in quite a bit, so you, you're you're very busy. A, a little bit, um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. So you know what? Um, I think a, a great place to start. Um, uh, l- let's start off with. I wanted to get into to to talk about your role as a as a patent agent, but we're going to push that back a little bit, if that's okay with you. Okay. And and start out with some of the the interfaith. Your work as a religious leader. Uh, and in particular, one of the things that I mentioned that t- since 2014 you have served as the um, as the lead for DC DC Muslimman. Could you talk a little bit about about your uh, interfaith and uh, b- about that work that you do? Yes, I, I, I will, and I and I, I do. I thank you for the invitation, um, and I do appreciate the cordial introduction. Um, I'm listening to you like, who is this guy he's talking about? I mean, I'm. <laughs> I consider myself a servant, and you know I try to do the best that I can with what a lot of us mean to have, and uh, from moment to moment. And so um, it's it's been an interesting life. But for, as far as interfaith work, uh, I don't really look at it as like something that I do as as a job or something like that. I think it's just more an extension of my my life. Like many of us who whose parents were in the uh, the first experience the nation of Islam or became Muslim, mm. they were the first Muslims in their family. And so I grew up with grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins, family members, you know, not to mention neighbors, classmates that were not Muslim. Right. And so I've always had to explain, why don't you eat again? You don't eat lunch? <laughs> don't drink water? Why? Right. So it's just been a part of, of my life experience, having to explain what I believe I, re- I remember being um, in elementary school and writing Balalian on the, the paper as an identifier because I wasn't an African-American, I wasn't black, and I had to explain to the teacher what a Balalian was and how we identified with the Balal Ibn Rabah, the companion of Prophet Muhammad, Prince peace be upon him, and that was my community identity. And she was like, what, what are your parents <laughs> teaching you at home? So right. yeah. I, this has been something that's that's uh, I've experienced, and so... Uh, just, you know, having the Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners with relatives and always ending up in the places you're not supposed to touch, religion and politics, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that was normal. Yeah. And so as I um, went through school and, and became engaged in uh, an extension of my identity, which was uh, Muslim student associations and Muslim-based organizations, uh, I began to realize that there was a need for this level of engagement uh, with people that just really you're introducing not just a faith, but you're introducing an identity. You're introducing like, okay, if you're a Muslim, what does that mean? Like, I remember being on campus and working with the students, you know, as a student myself, and trying to, you know, explain to the cafeteria staff how we needed to have meals provided to us after the cafeteria was closed and how we needed to have bags given to us prior to the cafeteria opening so we could, you know, make our suhoor and break our fast yeah. because we were we were we had paid for board and we needed to have our um our meals. And having explained that then to the dean and to the chaplain and to the eventually the president of the college before we were able to 
get some of those needs met, and just realizing that a lot of a lot of um, challenges arise from lack of understanding and lack of awareness. And so, um, while I was working uh, as the associate imam under Imam Yusuf Salim and Masjid Muhammad, uh, I guess uh, I don't know about ten or more years ago now, uh, one of the uh, responsibilities. He would always get all these invitations to to different events, and he said, "You know, Tariq, I really don't have time for this uh, interfaith. I have these engagements with the mayor's office and other things. Can you can you just focus on these interfaith invitations?" Mm-hmm. And so I said, "Sure, I'll take it." Uh, and I didn't know that just me acknowledging that uh, would lead to so many different opportunities within the interfaith experience. You know what? Before before you go to to those opportunities that came up by being present. Uh, in those in those uh, uh, instances, let me just kind of rewind a little bit. the The statements that you would have to make, the lobbying that you would have to do, uh, on behalf of your fellow uh, Muslims when you were in, uh, in in college as a part of the MSA, did you feel like, or did you recognize that this was that this was, uh, I guess, laying a foundation for activism or ad- advocacy? Did you see it in that light? I actually didn't see it in that light at all. I think um, the number of, of people that have come out of that experience um, that have gone on uh, to do great things, uh, whether it's in you know in all areas, whether it's been in, in Islam and um, in law, in academia, and professional careers. I mean, we had a very unique experience, and uh, I just think it was just a providence of a lot of it that made it so. Um, I went to school at Morehouse College, and that uh, we had Atlanta University Center, which is for historically black colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. There were really six, but we're t- we were together, and there were students from Muslim students from all those you know campuses, and we would just come together, and we would just try to meet the needs of the people. We didn't try to do any high-powered teaching or anything; just really tried to meet the needs of the students that were there, mm-hmm. the social needs, the uh, need for prayer a place to congregate for, uh, at first we were going to the local massages for Juma, mm-hmm. and a lot of us had the same experience and were from the same uh, Muslim community, and so that enabled us to make a lot of headway, where I noticed that, you know, since other MSAs may have different or separate, um, different religious interests, and different mm-hmm. religious experiences and backgrounds that may cause conflict instead of unity, yeah. and we didn't really have that. majority of our, our membership was had been, you know, were members of the community of Imam Warthi Muhammad. And so we were able to, to build alliances. We built alliances with, uh, we had a, a, a MSA basketball tournament that we would take the AUC MSA students, and we'd, we'd partner with the local schools, um, which most of their students usually were uh, Muslims of had an immigrant background, you know, Arab or Pakistani, uh, from the subcontinent in different areas of the world, mm-hmm. and we would have a tournament that would really bring the communities together. And, uh, you know, we had great relationships. I mean, some of these relationships, some of these um, individuals, I mean, they've, they've gone on to do great things, and I think that it was, in a way, laying a foundation for activism. And so I really think a lot of what I've done in terms of involvement in the Muslim community, mm-hmm. uh, in, engagement in issues, the foundation, the bedrock was really laid on that, that experience that I had uh, as a college student and just being, you know, again, nothing too high power. Just really trying to organize and meet the most, the common essential needs that we all have. Was this before, was this before you uh, 
um, had studied in Syria, or was this after? Uh, this was before, uh, and I actually found out about Syria from the, being in the MSA. I, we had some sisters from Spelman College that went to, uh, they went to Syria, mm-hmm. and I found out about the program through them going to Syria, and then said, oh, that'd be cool, I want to go learn Arabic too. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, this, this was, I mean, right out of high school, out of Decatur, Georgia, out of high school, into uh, Morehouse College. That was a, a very pivotal experience for me. Mm-hmm. Now, so... Um, so moving forward, uh, you began, you know, as an associate imam with um, Ed Masjid Muhammad, and you are put in a position where you are representing uh, the community in interfaith settings. And as, did, did you find yourself drawing on those past experiences, or was this, um, was it, was it a new, was it a new field for you? Uh, it was, it was very much me drawing on those those past experiences. I think that, um, you know, I, I don't want to say that anything, I did anything extra special. I think what what I did was use my individual experience and try to uh, translate that onto a, a, you know, we were at, at seminaries and different um, uh, religious schools, and you're dealing with people in various faith communities that are leaders in the faith community. So, it may have intensified those conversations a little bit more because you're dealing with, you know, those, you know, people that have dedicated themselves to study faith mm-hmm. and become leaders of faith in faith communities. Uh, so there were missionaries there. There were, you know, uh, pastors. There were uh, ministers getting their, their MDiv and uh, DMIN uh, degrees. And so you, you have to, uh, there are people that had lived as missionaries in uh, what they consider hostile environments towards Christians, right. and so, uh, in, in Muslim majority lands. So there were there were a lot of interesting um, subjects and in, in conversations that you know I hadn't had before. But these experiences growing up with you know a grandmother who's a was a self proclaimed uh, Baptist missionary and who you know having uh, other grandparents who were highly involved in the AME and CME church, mm-hmm. uh, having an uncle who's in the full gospel ministry in Texas. These types of experiences that I had with, with my family members mm-hmm. helped me, uh, you know, with the tools and understanding to kind of make these, um, make these conversations um, worthwhile and, and benefit those that were involved. Well, let me ask this, Imam. Uh, well, well, first, let me give a little bit of a translation for any of the Radio Islam family who may not be familiar with the AME. Uh, that's the African Methodist uh, Episcopalian. Yes, African yes. Methodist Episcopal, yes. And that is, uh, that's actually one of the, if not, I believe, the oldest uh, church for African Americans. Uh, and, well, just, just giving that little bit of a, uh, just a quick um, uh, clarification or expounding on that a bit. Uh, so one of the things I found really uh, interesting, uh, I think intriguing, I don't think interesting is the right word, but intriguing and inspiring uh, about you, ma'am, is that your religious uh, leadership and study, that it is also related, has a very practical uh, outlet. And and that I see uh, connecting that to your entrepreneurship, uh, to your work as a uh, patent agent, uh, often, well, I shouldn't say often, but often enough. I say people can sometimes become very 
just focus on their faith or, or spiritual matter, matters and leave off the, the material concerns. Uh, and what's the old saying? It says faith, faith without works, you know, is dead. So I want to ask you with that bit of setup, how does your faith, how does, how does that impact your, uh, your entrepreneurship? I think it uh, it fuels it. Uh, I would say that my faith fuels my entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I have, you know, I was raised in the community. My my father would always talk about, you know, uh, do for self, and if you get a job, learn the job and figure out how to do do something for yourself. So he was definitely bringing that that old teaching that that we had. Uh, and I watched, you know, I watched my father was a he's a retired firefighter, but I watched, you know, his um, Many different business endeavors, uh, things that he tried, things that didn't work, uh, different uh, coalitions he built with different brothers and uh, community members. And so I, I learned vicariously through those experiences. And I uh, also was blessed to have some internships in, in college at, at NASA, uh, Space Administration. And NASA? Yes, at, okay. at NASA. Uh, so, but but having those experiences, I think um, after after having you know working and making a little bit of money working at NASA and then having opportunities to work um, in my field of engineering, I was looking for just something a little bit more in terms of purpose. So I, I, I would say that my my study abroad and my my uh, religious studies were a detour. Uh, from my original passion, which was I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I wanted to work and, and, and start up my own business. But I think I had to find a way to merge the two, to align my my deepest concerns, my spiritual concerns, with my material concerns, and, and so that you know my purpose, I was aligned in my purpose. And I think that's a journey that you. I don't know if you ever arrive at that that final point until you leave this earth, but I think that it's something that you the soul is striving to achieve, to become to a place of satisfaction so that your work literally is worship. And uh, you, you feel that your your daily purpose uh, and the things that you, you work to achieve are aligned with your your deepest spiritual values. And so I th- that would be, you know, what um, how I would kind of answer that question. I think that's kind of what, uh, for me, at least drove me, uh, and I don't see that you can really, as a religious person, to really express your religious concerns unless you have freedom to do so. Right. Uh, and to achieve that freedom, you you have to be creative. You have to be free to express um, what what a lot puts in you. And so, I think entrepreneurship. I mean, the prophet Prince Upon Him was an entrepreneur. Right. He was a businessman, uh, and he did international trade, international business. Uh, that was um, a very high level of business at that at that time. So I think these examples, uh, even you know, many of the prophets and, and messengers of Allah, they they were engaged in some type of community work beyond religious work that was practical. Uh, we're given the the, the teaching of, of Isa Lay Salam being a a carpenter, right, right, and many of the uh, the prophets and messengers of God being shepherds or farmers or tending land, tending to flocks. So, Let me look at this other point you mentioned with your father being a retired firefighter uh, and uh, as a first responder, uh, 
service provider, do you feel that your entrepreneurial uh, philosophy is an, I would say, an, an amalgamation of of providing service as well as well as being able to um, acquire uh, gain, you know, financial gain as well? Do you feel do you feel that you incorporate both of these uh, elements? And, yes. Yeah, and is that is was that influenced by the example, uh, by your father's example? Um, uh, I would say probably by my my mother and my father. My mother is a, a retired professor uh, from Georgia State University. She was a math professor, okay. and what I saw in my parents, you know, both of them are retired now, but both of them, you know, have served on um, community organization boards. My father's a convener of uh, a masjid, um, masjid Alokminun in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a convener on the board. He's very active in the community. And he, he's been active in the community as long as I can remember. My mother also has been a, a founding board member and a lifetime member of uh, the organization in, in Atlanta, Sisters United in Human Service. And so I think in both my parents, I saw an example, not just my parents, I would say my grandparents and my family, I think that's something for those of us who have, have, have had this African-American experience, we've seen, you know, whether we're engaged in whatever our profession is or a career, there's always been some community involvement and some give back. Uh, and that would be, I would say that story or some aspect of that is true for many of us. And so I think it's that, that collective example from not just my family but from our community that I definitely felt uh, an obligation. So even in my, my business, I see myself as helping people, and I look at it as an opportunity to help someone and, and help them in a positive way. And if, I'm, if I don't help them, they're not satisfied, then I'm not looking to, to receive financial gain. I'm looking to we go into business together. So, we, you know, we, I help them uh, provide a service, and, you know, hopefully we, we grow together. That's, that's the outlook that I have. Okay. You know what? So you actually have segued very um, expertly into – the second half of our conversation, as we get into uh, into your business, um, it is uh, Gibraltar Consulting. Yes? yes. Okay. And and yes, we have a nice little story about Gibraltar for any for those who might not be familiar with its origins. Um, yes. But as 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 Tariks, uh, we we should we should both be up on this one. So yes. uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll tell that story real quick, and we'll we'll get back into the patent. Uh, patent consultancy and all of that good work. So, uh, Radio Islam family, we're talking with Imam Tariq Najila, and we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in just a moment. And now we have an eight-year-old on the line. Welcome to Our World Today. What's your question? Our continents make up 29% of the Earth's surface, meaning that 71% is comprised of water. Man automatically adapts to environmental conditions. So why do I need to take swimming lessons? Are you ready for kids who eat healthy? Good nutrition can lead to great things. To find out how a healthy lifestyle can help your child succeed, go to MyPyramid.gov. Brought to you by the Ad Council and USDA. When Dad needed help getting around, I became his driver. Soon enough, it was up to me to be his housekeeper and financial manager, too. When he moved in, I became his cook and even his nurse. But no matter what roles I play, 
I know I'm still his daughter. We understand the roles you play. So to help, we created aarp.org slash caregiving, where you can connect with experts and other caregivers. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Hey, Mom, why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why isn't 11 pronounced 21? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show, produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are still broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at www.wceb1450.com. And you can still keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And make sure to check out all those episodes that you have not heard and maybe that you just might want to check out again wherever you get your podcasts. And you will find us at Radio Islam USA. Okay, I've said it all. Uh, we are talking with Imam Tariq Najiala. He is an interfaith uh, activist. Uh, I, I, I'll go on and put it in. He didn't, he didn't say this, but I'm going to also add in there. Uh, an educator, um, an entrepreneur. And as we close out the last, uh, before we go into break, we were talking about the business side. So I am excited to, to share something that I think uh, many of us are going to have questions about. We hear about patents all the time, right, having a patent. Uh, there are plenty of commercials that say, send us your invention and we'll help you get you a, get you a patent. But we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. So Imam Tariq, you are also you are a licensed patent agent. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about what do, what does that entail? Uh, that doesn't I don't I don't think I run into many patent agents, so it feels like that's kind of an exclusive club. There's a small number of us. I mean, it's uh, I'd say less than a hundred thousand of us in terms of patent agents and patent attorneys in the United States that are registered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I always like to explain patents like this, so. Uh, 
patents is commerce. Mm-hmm. Patents is commerce. What do I mean by that? So when the Constitution was written, there's an article uh, that basically says that, you know, an individual is entitled to any uh, machine, apparatus, composition, or system, or process uh, that is new or novel, if they can prove that uh, and register with the United States government, then they are given basically a license monopoly to uh, profit from or manufacture and profit from this idea. Mm-hmm. So basically what it, this is how it works. It's um, A patent is you trade in your exclusive idea. You give it to the government and say, look, you can, you can publish this and make it public. And for that exchange, the government says, okay, you are the sole owner of this idea for the next 20 years, 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you're able to then license from that. So uh, an example of that would be like we look at the light bulb or the car, uh, like Thomas Edison, the light bulb, really Lewis, Lewis Lattimore in the, in the filament. When they when they came up with this technology, everyone was trying to make a light bulb, but no one knew how to do it. And no one would know how to do it unless, had it not been for filing a patent application. What that does is make, that's published in, in a, a U.S. Uh, gazette or journal that goes out. Mm-hmm. It's published, and then everyone can see how to make it, see how it works. And then everyone that's engaged in this kind of activity or technology can then benefit from you advancing and moving technology forward. And so uh, the question that often comes up is like, well, why do I need a patent? And I say that, you know, people you know, are used to this, I guess, with music. And, you know, you can have a, uh, a, a song or composition of music, uh, music you know, a, a beat, but if you don't register that beat, you don't give it a copyright, you don't uh, register with the proper agencies, then anybody can take that beat and do whatever they want with it, and you have no um, ownership of it. Once you make something public, it becomes public property and public information, and you cannot necessarily profit from it at that point. And so uh, I like to tell people, like, if you have, how do you make an idea real? Because if I just share my idea with anyone, then that idea just becomes part of their conversation, and they can use it. But if I... Uh, take an idea, then I have to um, give it some an address. So, like, I'll tell you, it's like buying a house. Mm-hmm. If I want to buy a house, and say I'm trying to buy a house, and I just say I want a house on the corner of First and Third Street. Uh, what if First and Third Street is a huge, you know, it's a huge intersection of blocks? Which house is it? You have to give it an address. You have to give it property lines. So the same is true with your idea. Let's say if you have a new idea for, let's say you came up with a new search engine, you can search images like, you know, Google has an image search, but say you invented that. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to describe it. You have to give it an address. You have to give it a name. You have to give it, you know, describe all the ins and outs of how it works. And then you have to register that with the, with the patent office. By you know doing what? that, you're given a limited <laughs> monopoly in the United States to then profit from that. And you can go out to say, hey, Google, I came up with this new way to do your search. I'll sell it to you, or I'll license the rights to use my patent. Uh, and this is, this is a, a way to kind of protect uh, 
the creative people um, in terms of the technological space. So this allows uh, this allows for the inventor to to essentially get a head start um, on on everybody else, but at the same time also setting the foundation for immediate improvements if possible. If if somebody's up to the task of 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 taking that information of looking at that of that patent that inv- invention and being able to add to it or alter it in in any way where it becomes identifiable in its own right then it then they're able to i would imagine they're also able to 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 um to apply for a patent of their own is, is that correct yeah so this is for inventors uh inventors inventors can be companies mm-hmm. uh but it's 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 a, a right uh, granted in America for the inventor, mm-hmm. and the uh, what my role is in this process is a patent uh, agent yes. and one who has ten years experience working for the office. I, I, I brand myself as a patent insider. Mm-hmm. I worked inside the patent office for ten years, learning how to uh, examine patents, determine whether something is a good patent. Uh, or whether it's somebody's trying to get something over. Uh, and so what it, it guarantees uh, an inventor um, is it really guarantees you as if you if you are the first to submit. It used to be the first person you could prove that you invented it first in your basement or in your garage. You could, you could win in court. But because of the volume, I mean, with hundreds of thousands of uh, patents every quarter, so that are submitted to the patent office. Because of that volume, the, the, um, in 2012, the, the United States passed an act, the America's Invent Act, that, that changed the uh, patent office in America, the patent system, to first to file, which means it doesn't matter when you come up with the idea. It matters when you submit your idea in a patent application to the patent office. And so there's incentive to act. And so one of the reasons why I saw an opportunity for my business was that uh, there are opportunities to help the uh, the inventor? A lot of times, the inventor, you know, doesn't the idea doesn't always come to a Fortune 500 company or a research lab. Sure. It, co- it can come to a guy in his garage. It can come to just someone who's, you know, because innovation is driven by necessity. So someone who identifies a problem and just invests the time in to try to figure out a solution. But that person always isn't the person that has the resources to move forward and actually secure a position that can change the life for themselves, their family, and their fu- future family, you know, for, for generations. Because so somebody, somebody I'm, I'm sorry to interject, somebody filed a patent for the snuggly. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So even, it can, it can be something like that, like a snuggly. Um, in fact, I worked on something that, you know, garments or clothing Mm -hmm. uh, that just serves a different need and so it doesn't always have to be something like a software it doesn't always have to be something that is a um, you know a widget it can be something again it's like clothing it can be sunglasses can be headwear it can be you know something automotive it can be something aeronautic it can be something uh Nautical, it can, you know, you can you can it runs the gamut. It can be chemical. You can make up a new composition in a laboratory, a new fabric, a new fiber. Uh, so the 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 sky is really the limit mm-hmm. on what you uh, what you want to do. But I think the 
the main thing to do is to take action, and that's what really what I try to do uh, is help inventors to take action. So with Gibraltar uh, Consulting, do yes. you um, do you have a particular area of 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 um, of, of focus? Uh, is it is it the garments? Is it software? Is it mechanical? Or is it or do you just do do you do everything? Well, I, I do. Um, I, my my experience, my expertise is with uh, electrical engineering type patents, electrical and mechanical inventions, mm-hmm. uh, software patents, okay. uh, applications, different softwares. That's my expertise. But as as someone who's a registered patent agent, you know, I have the skills, and I've worked with all the technologies I just named. You know, I've, I've done some medical devices. I've done some some uh, aeronautics or airplane type technology. I've done solar energy. I've done, uh, like I said, garments. I've worked with uh, footwear. Um, so it's really, once you know the process, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a process expert, and I rely on the inventor to be the subject matter expert, uh, and I help take that inventive uh, concept and put it in the proper format and, and so that it can be processed properly by the office. And then, you know, I make sure that going through that process, I'm able to make sure that the uh, that process kind of goes smoothly or, you know, respond back when the, the patent office has questions. I help facilitate. Um, I, would, I would say, like, going back to that real, real estate idea, yeah. we'd be like the realtor in the in the process. Okay. We're not buying a house. Mm-hmm. We're not selling, you know, we may be selling the house, but we're... we're dealing with a process to make it a, a kind of a turnkey process. And I think it's, it's, you know, you can buy a house or sell a house yourself, but I think, um, you know, there are a lot of tools and things that, that you know, advantages that to using a realtor. You can file a patent yourself, too. I think it's, it's, it's a little more uh, technically and legally involved than simply purchasing a house. Uh, and there, there are a lot of things you need to consider that most, the average person doesn't have the time or the experience in in working with, mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's quite helpful to have a professional uh, practitioner. So you mentioned that there is a patent bar. Yes. Um, and what what does that entail? So the patent bar, uh, it's it's a, I guess the nickname of the United States Patent and Trademark Office registration exam. Okay. And that registration exam uh, is limited to individuals that have a certain technical aptitude that means you have to be a scientist or you've gone to you know take a certain number of classes in school science classes or you can take an exam to to make sure that you have the technical aptitude for the uh, exam although there are no technical questions on the exam Mm -hmm. but because as a registered patent practitioner you'll be dealing with technical and scientific inventions you have to be able to process that information. So they, they, they put a a requisite skill set or prerequisite that you have to have a certain level of um, technical expertise prior to taking the exam. And then it's it's pretty much you. It's a legal exam. You you have to know the patent law and what statutes and how to uh, navigate them. And so you're given different scenarios, sample questions, different sample scenarios, and you have to select the, you know, some multiple choice test, uh, like, I don't know, four to six hours, something like that, mm-hmm. with the break in between. And 
it's, I mean, it's, it would be like a bar exam, a, a legal bar exam, but it it's, uh, doesn't give you a status as a lawyer, right. just as a patent, patent practitioner before the U.S. Patent Office. And the so I, I can, you know, pretty much the difference between me and a patent attorney is I'm a, I, I'm, I didn't go to law school. I don't have a J.D., mm-hmm. so I can't walk in anybody's courtroom. But when it comes to the patent office, it's, there's no difference right. in terms of patent prosecution. I think the only thing a, a patent attorney can do that a patent agent is not licensed to do is deal with trademarks. Mm. So how long is the how long is the patent process generally, or or is there a a general time frame, or is it based upon the the patent itself? So the patent process to get a patent, I would say that you know the, the statistics are published online at the USPTO.gov. Your website, uh, you can search for it, but it's there at about a three to four year average. So if you file an application uh, today, you know May first, twenty eighteen, you're looking at you probably won't get hear anything back from the patent office until maybe January or March of twenty twenty, and then once that process starts, you may not get your patent until twenty twenty two. Uh, but once you have the patent, it's retroactive to when you first filed, so you'll have the patent coverage from May 1st, 2018, uh, 20 years from that point. Uh, if you file a utility patent, and if it's, it's a design patent, which you can patent a design of a widget or whatever type of device that you or structure you're, you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, people have, have design patents on dolls, on clothing, I'm sure the Snuggie might be a design patent, <laughs> but that gives you 15 years protection for a design patent. And then there are other ones, different breeds of plants. You get different, you know, it's a different timeline for, for plant patents. But Well, we had a, a question come in. Okay. And uh, the question is, can you share some of the inventions that you've personally come across in your work? Yes, I can. I, and for this one, I probably will share the ones that I came across as a patent examiner. Okay. Uh, because as a patent agent, it's pretty much like a, an attorney. There's attorney-client privilege, so there's agent-client privilege. And so there are cases oh, wow. that I have worked on for clients that are not public right. and have yet to be published, so I can't discuss those. But uh, there was a technology, I think, um, Walmart purchased this company called Voodoo. They do online streaming. So before that even came out, I, you know, I, I prosecuted that patent and awarded that patent for the the Voodoo streaming technology. I uh, think do online movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, there's some other technology. Um, I think with a Volkswagen and uh, there are these keys, uh, smart keys for your car. So when you go to your car, uh, let's say you know you and your wife share the car. And you have a certain, you know, settings for your radio stations, settings for your seat, how far back you want your seat, how you want it to be angled, where you want your uh, the temperature to be. All these things will be part of your key fob and associated with you. And so, if it sees that you're coming to the car, the car would start and set the, you know, set to your profile, set to your, the, the the seat length and the seat angle, and get your radio station started, get the temperature right, and um, this kind of one of these this invention was not just for your car though it would also be like if it sees you're coming home it would 
you know, set the ambiance in your in your living room and maybe the music you like a jazz station or maybe you want a hip hop station. Mm. It was basically like we had these smart keys. It was a smart key that went beyond. It was like for the whole house. Um, and you could go to your office and do the same thing. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones um, off the top of my head. I, I didn't. I didn't plan to talk about these. <laughs> but I didn't have a list of That's a lot of stuff though. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. You know, the, the listeners will always throw the curveball. Um, <laughs> but um, have there been have there been patents that you have worked on and you have, because they, ha- they haven't gotten to the point where they are public, they haven't been awarded yet, but you are kind of excited waiting for them to, to get through the process? Are, are there things like, has that, has that happened for you? Uh, yes. Uh, there are uh, things like, wow, I wish I had thought of that. Yeah. You know, they're they're definitely uh, definitely a lot of patents that I uh, I've seen sometimes in the solar energy. I was like, man, I, I wish I had thought about. It. it seems sometimes it seems like something that would be um, what do you say? Something that would be you know, like, oh man, I I, I I thought of this. Right. But you know, I think a lot of times inventions are like that. You know, it is something that you think you could have thought of before. And somebody and, just rose with it, right? So, uh, but there are some exciting. I've seen some some exciting Apple patents. I have uh, hmm. seen some uh, exciting Google patents. You get to see what's next. So, so let's um, let's talk a bit about your own entrepreneurship outside of the. Well, you know what? Let, let me stop myself for a minute. So, I don't know. Have do you? Okay, so you you listed most of what you do, or the purpose behind Gibraltar Consulting, um, and you help you get people an address, basically, right? That's a really rudimentary way of uh, of saying it. Right. Um, are there any other services that you provide that are uh, that you did not mention before I ask you about your entrepreneurship? Um, yeah, so the, with the um, with my uh, Gibraltar Consulting, uh, primarily um, I am uh, provide patent related services, patent consulting, and patent agency services. And whether that's working with law firms and helping to support law firms with their patent workload, uh, or whether it's directly working with individual clients, uh, that is a the main thrust of Gibraltar Consulting, but I also have uh, other umbrellas under there. Uh, one, I do app development. Uh, have a, currently have an app available on iTunes uh, called Coexist Emojis, an emoji app that uh, really shows a diverse, um, kind of going back to the interface, with a diverse uh, just array of ways to express your faith in everyday situations, whether it's uh, devotional items or prayer or community uh, you know, references. I mean, I think I have bean pie on there and mm-hmm. different um, different images of Muslim, different images of Christians and Jews, different images of Rastafari and uh, Buddhist and just various faith communities are represented. And uh, so I, I do, that's something that I, I've learned the skill of, of app development and for uh, clients that need that service, I provide that service. And then I'll say, um, the final two services that I provide under the umbrella of Gibraltar Consulting, uh, one is uh, IT co- consulting services. I, I um, have a number of relationships with IT companies, and I, I do help people uh, 
that need those services um, on a corporate level or business level to help them provide IT services, also sales and marketing services for uh, individuals. But those, these are, I would say, these are tertiary um, services that I provide. Mm-hmm. And then uh, finally, just the, the interfaith uh, consulting, um, the D.C. Muslim Man comes under this umbrella of Gibraltar Consulting. So I try to, to align all of my interests and bring them under one umbrella mm-hmm. so that, you know, I can serve and help people in a, var- in a variety of ways. But I do that professionally through my business, uh, through Gibraltar Consulting. Okay. So, uh, as you said, that serves as the umbrella for everything else. Yes. Okay. All right, that is uh that is awesome, um, and you know we've got a few we've got a few minutes. We did not give the story for those who may not be, um, who may not be aware of the origins of Gibraltar, um, and, and I have to ask you, was 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 obviously that was an intentional that was an intentional intentional choice? Yes, it was <laughs> actually my my wife helped me think of that name. Oh really? And. Uh, I, I forgot what I was going to go with, but it wasn't as cool as Gibraltar. So. <laughs> yes. So if you don't know, uh, the Gibraltar is a, I guess, an outgrowth of the pronunciation of the mountain of, of, of Tariq, the mountain of Tariq. Yes. Jabal el Tariq. That's yes. right. And then it, it became Gibraltar. So. Not not often that I think I think you are the first um, the first Tariq on the show <laughs> with me. So this is an historic date. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to glad to be there with you, ma'am. Yes, yes. Thank thank you, ma'am. Um, so uh, do you have? Uh, can you give the Radio Islam family the the website where they can find out or uh, more about the about Gibraltar Consulting? If they have questions they might want to ask you, uh, where should they go? Uh, well, the website is, uh, address is GibraltarConsulting.co, and that's not a mistake. It's not .com, .co. Uh, but if you want to want to contact me on um, patent-related matters, I send them to my uh, – I brand myself as a patent insider, and I have a, my website. It's patentinsider.co. Uh, that will take you to my calendar, or you can look at me on Twitter. I'm at Twitter at Patent Insider or LinkedIn. Um, Tariq Najila on LinkedIn, uh, but these are um, where you can contact me. Um, I'm readily available. Also on on Twitter, uh, I think and Instagram at, at DC Muslim Man. Uh, these are these are places you can contact me, and uh, if I can help you, I'd, I'd love to to do what I can. I do have uh, some clients in Chicago that I've I've worked with as well. So okay. that's definitely that's definitely good news for the uh, Chicago family. Uh, that are sitting on inventions, right? So, first first one to file is the one who gets the uh, who gets That's the patent. Right. Yeah. So if you're sitting on an invention, you don't want to sit up and see your invention come across the TV uh, screen late one night, and you're thinking to yourself, "I could have done that." So, call them up and get it done. Well, Imam Tariq, um, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, you are definitely, uh, as I said at the beginning, a Renaissance man. Uh, so keep uh, keep 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 doing uh, all the, the the great things that that you're doing and being of service, and uh, just you know wish you continued success, brother. Well, I would say this, brother man. Thank you for the for the invitation, 
and I would say it, it takes a renaissance man to know one. I definitely, um, <laughs> <laughs> definitely uh, uh, admire and appreciate all that you do, and uh, like I said, bless you and your family and, and the many things that, that you do uh, in the city and abroad uh, to advance and move uh, things forward. We appreciate you and thank you for this uh, wonderful service of your program. Alhamdulillah. All right, bro. Um, peace to you and the family. All right, uh, Radio Islam family, we have come to the close of another uh, just a really quick hour, uh, as always. And uh, we hope that you've enjoyed the program. At this point, we want to go ahead and send our shout-outs, our thanks over to our uh, good friends over at the WCEV station. Thank our engineer on duty, Ramon. Thank you very much. Uh, we did not drop. Came through nice and clear, as always. Thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, assist, assistant producer Ibrahim Beg. We thank our executive producer, Abdul Malik Mujahid. I'm your host and producer for tonight, Tariq Alameen. Thank our guest again, Imam Tariq Najiala. And we thank you, most of all, for spending this hour with us. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and are to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision, Inc. I think we're all done. So, we'll see you again tomorrow, God willing, inshallah. So, we're going to leave you now as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.